Well, as I mentioned a couple weeks back, I, I had it in my mind to use our evening services uh, over the summer as I kind of catch up in my studies in the book of Jeremiah so that we can go back to it in the fall and I could do it with some degree of comprehension of the uh, meaning of that vast book of Holy Scripture that uh, uh, I'd like to occupy our time in considering something about the essentials of the Christian life and the essentials of the Christian life that come before us and a couple of passages in the Word of God that uh, give summary statements, they give like epitomizing statements of what the Christian life is all about. You want to see it in a short little condensed version of it? Well, Moses gives the nation of Israel something of a condensed version in what he says in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 when he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What does God require of you? And then certainly it's in the light of uh, everything he said up to this point in a sermon that actually began back in chapter 5. Uh, Deuteronomy is comprised of three great sermons, and the first is the first four chapters, and the second begins in chapter 5, and I forget where it ends, but it goes on beyond the place where we are now. But at this point, Moses has been rehearsing uh, the ways of God with his people, and how he's led them out of the Egyptian bondage, how they met at Sinai, how he entered into covenant. Although he did with their fathers, uh, uh, Moses says, no, 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 we're renewing the covenant here. It's not with your fathers. This new covenant enactment is with, it's with you. It's this nation now poised to enter into the land of Canaan and the, from the plains of Moab. Uh, this is a people in covenant with God. And as God gave his revelation of his law on Sinai, so that revelation of the law is again repeated in chapter 5. The commandments again are expressed. I think much more in something of a redemptive context, but yet... Uh, basically a reiteration of that law, the purpose of the law, and then the history of the nation as they were led through the wilderness wanderings, and at several points, or at least two major points, they had apostatized, or they had cast off the allegiance they were to have to God as their covenant Lord and King, and they worshipped the golden calf at Sinai, later they failed to go up to the land in obedience to the the word of the Lord because they heard the words of the spies and they got frightened and they didn't fear God and they didn't trust God and they didn't believe God was able and sufficient to give them conquest over the land and so they were made to wander for 40 years in the wilderness but these things were provocations that uh, were against the Lord and against his honor and his glory judgments fell upon the nation Um, but now God has brought them to this point he's brought them to the threshold of entering into the inheritance and now in the light of all that God has done, all that God has, has given in his redemptive grace and his covenant love, uh, what does the Lord, your God, require of you? And I said we had something similar in the book of Romans where Paul says, um, by the mercies of God, uh, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. What does God require of you in the light of his mercies? in the light of this great work of grace in in Jesus, what is the appropriate response? How should we respond to such grace? How should we respond to such love? Well, give yourself to him. Present your bodies, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service, the service that is in accordance with what um, reason would require. Anything less is, is insanity. Anything less is bereft of reason. And um, again, this is the similar note that Moses is sounding. There's a kind of life, there's a kind of um, commitment, there's a kind of allegiance required 
of God's people that's part of their reasonable service. And it consists in this passage in Deuteronomy of these five things that Moses sets before the nation. Um, And they're all in the light of these verbs. To fear the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. And you have five of these things, and I mentioned that five things usually is a tip-off that you should look at the central one and see if there's something significant about that central one. Because one of the ways teaching was done in the ancient world was to give you an odd number of things in which the central thing was the chief thing. It was the heart issue. It was the thing that is most important. And all the other uh, of the items surrounding it uh, leads to it, flows from it, centers in it. And uh, the central thing here is love. That's a central commandment. It comes right smack in the middle of these five things. And it's the most it's the briefest of them. Simply to love Yahweh, to love the Lord, to be enraptured with his being, and to give yourself to a relationship to him where you are invested in him and all that he is. To love him because of who he is, to love him because of his attributes, to love him because of his mighty works. To love him because of his deeds of mercy. To love him because of all that he is and all that he's done for you. Love is the appropriate response to the love with which God has loved his people. He's led the way in love as we saw this morning. He set the tone for love in his love to us. As Jesus says, as the Father loved me, um, as, uh, that, that I have loved you. That I have shown you the love that is the love that the Father has to the Son. And you've entered into the love of the triune God as He has come to you to make you part of His people. And, um, you know, with regard to this whole business of the central thing and whether that is valid, uh, I, was li- I always like to get a little confirmation from some of these books I buy and read. <laughs> and uh, this is a book, it's an older book uh, uh, in the series of the New International Commentaries on the Old Testament. Uh, Peter Craigie, I believe he was a teacher uh, up in a university or college or seminary in Canada. And uh, he was a guy who, um, he, he was a real outdoorsman. I've read his biography. And I'm trying to think of it was mountain climbing or in motorcycle riding or something that he did that a lot of pastors don't do, but he did. Uh, God took him. He, his, his life was lost. He's with the Lord now. But he has written in his life this wonderful commentary, brief commentary, but yet really to the point in so many regards uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. And um, one of the things that uh, Peter Craigie says on this passage that we're looking at, he says this, he says, of the five requirements listed in the present context, love for God is the central one. Thank you, Peter Craigie. I'm standing on pretty good ground. I'm not the only one to see that. Love for God is the central one. But now we come on to look at some of the other things. And what we want to do first is look tonight at the lead one, the one that meets us first and foremost. And my own understanding of the way this really should go is that this central feature of love really covers the whole of God's character, character, his nature, his being, his names, his revelation. Uh, All of that is to be the object of the love of God's people, of our investment in him as our God. Um, And um, that love for him is to be seen in these other aspects of our walk before him or our life before him 
our attitude towards him, our response towards him. <clears throat> and so these are all aspects of the love with which we owe to him. And uh, so uh, saying that, um, it's interesting to see that the first of these things, if in fact all of these things are an aspect of the central thing, which is love, um, the first of those things is to fear. To fear. To fear Yahweh, your God. Now, of course, it's our own tendency to think, and people in the world think, that to call upon people to fear God is to require of them something very terrible. That seems to them to be the antithesis of love. Uh, I don't fear God, I love God. And uh, as if uh, fearing God was something outside of the realm of loving God. But my assertion is it's not. That it's love is central and fear is a component part of it. The appropriate response we have to God in the context of a covenant he makes with Israel as a nation, when context of a covenant he makes with us in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to fear him. It's not just an Old Testament requirement, it's a New Testament requirement. We saw it in the book of 2 Corinthians in the Sunday school uh, just last week, having these promises. What are we to be doing? He says we're to, put, we're to uh, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, or bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. God is to be the object of our fear. It's New Testament as well as old. And this question of the fear of God and what it's concerned with is something we've talked about quite a bit uh, through the years. I've told you lots of things about the fear of God. I'm going to come try to tell you some few, few things about the fear of God that I've just really discovered and uncovered myself. And, and that is in my own understanding of the fear of God as it's mapped out for us in the Old Testament in particular, there is a close association between the fear of God and hearing the voice of God. So if, if that's true, then the love of God pertains to the totality of who God is. It's investment in his being, in all the aspects of the divine being. We're to love him. Uh, and to fear him is to hear his voice. It's to be responsive to the things that he has said. It's to be determined by his words. It's to have his words govern and guide us and direct us in such a way that the voice we hear is the voice we long to comply with. It's the voice we long to obey. You know, the word obedience in the Old and New Testament is a word that means to hear. You hear what God has said. And when we hear what God has said, it should be the response of those who fear God as an aspect of loving God is that we incline our souls to do the things that the voice of God has commanded us to do. What God has directed us to do should be the principal vision of our lives, the thing that governs our lives, the things that directs our paths as God's people. Now the fact that this matter of the fear of God is in fact connected to the voice of God, it seems to me it goes all the way back to even uh, the beginning in the book of Genesis with regard to um, uh, God's relationship with, um, with uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden, uh, there was the sound of the voice of the Lord. It was something that was heard of the Lord's approach that Adam knew and God drew near to him and that drawing near to him was to commune with him 
And it was to speak to him. It was to address him. It was to have uh, something of not just a presence, but something of a, con- of a dialogue, a conversation of God addressing his, his son, his servant, in the Garden of Eden. And again, we're not privy to what was said. We're not privy to the, the details of the conversation other than of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat thereof, dying you shall die. The warning against the eating of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, but yet there was this uh, communion that Adam had with the Lord that involved a voice, involved a sound, involved not just something Adam saw, it involved something he heard in way of divine communion. And so when he flees from the presence of God, having sinned, uh, and God calls him and says, Adam, where are you? Uh, his response is, I heard the sound of your voice, and I was afraid, and I hid myself. Now, the response of Adam before the entrance of sin would have been also to fear the Lord, but in a different way. To fear displeasing him, to fear not hearing him to have saw part of what God makes known to you as your child, uh, something you just are oblivious to, not concerned about, when you should be concerned about it. Uh, someone in a right relationship to God wants to hear God's voice. Because we want to know what God says. And we want to know what God says because we want to do what God says. We might have troubles in doing it. We may have obstacles in the way of doing it. We may have the opposition of sinful practices and stand in the way of doing it. But if we're a Christian, we hear the voice of the Lord and we want to obey. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. Part of being a Christian is that we've heard the voice of God in the gospel and we've hearkened to his voice, calling us to himself. We've heard the call. We've come to faith. Um, one of the very interesting conversations I had with a, a man who, who, who worked at the place, he was the manager of the um, uh, Actors Fund uh, nursing home in Tenafi. And uh, I'd come at night to work there to be a guard over the facility. I'll tell you stories about my time as a guard there, but nonetheless, what I'm looking to drive at is one of the conversations I had with the guy that managed the place was over this question of why are you so certain? does God speak to you why doesn't he speak to me I said well yes in fact he does speak to me you know not from the voice I hear audibly but from his word and from the gospel that God calls us who are believers and you are just oblivious to that voice you just haven't heard it and what you need to do is you need to by faith know that there is a God who desires to dwell with men by faith to believe that uh, God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him and uh, that's really your problem is that you're not invested enough in a relationship with God that you're just oblivious to his voice and that's the, the truth of it when God's people are those who hear his voice and they respond to it so to fear God is to hear his voice and uh, hearing his voice um, to incline our ears to the doing of what God requires his people to do now one of the prominent aspects of the voice of God there's many of them in the Old Testament the one that really stands out is um, Pharaoh as an unbeliever who has a prophet who comes to him of course uh, God tells Moses you will be a God to Pharaoh and Aaron's going to be your prophet so God's going to come to 
Pharaoh in the person of Moses. And God's word is going to come to Pharaoh in the person of the prophet Aaron. Aaron's going to speak the word of God. He's going to bring him the word of God. And um, in chapter 3, let's go back to Exodus 3. Uh, let's let's move up. Let's move up to chapter five. There is a reference to it, but I think I just I gave you the summary of it already, so no need to read it again. Uh, but in chapter five, we have that afterward Moses and Aaron. This is verse one. Went and said to Pharaoh, "Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness." But Pharaoh said, "Who is Yahweh?" that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Here's a man who hears the voice of God. And he says, I don't care to hear the voice of God. I don't want to obey his voice. I don't want to do the things that the voice of God is required of me. I will not obey. I will not let Israel go. Now later on in the narrative, we find that at the base of Pharaoh's problem with not heeding the voice of God, was that he did not have the fear of God. It was the absence of godly fear that led him to not not obey uh, the voice of Yahweh. And I believe it's in chapter, uh, let's see, I believe it's like the seventh plague. Yeah, look at chapter 9. chapter 9 the Lord said to Moses in verse 13 rise up early in the morning present yourself before Pharaoh say to him thus says Yahweh the God of the Hebrews let my people go that they may serve me but this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that they may know that there is none like me in all the earth for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. We heard Paul uh, quote that in Romans 9 in the reading this morning. Uh, he says, you're still exalting yourselves, yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause heavy rain to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send and get your livestock. So a warning's being, being given. This is God's voice coming to the Egyptians. This is God's voice telling them what God, what God will bring. And um, now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into a safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of Yahweh left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Two reactions to the voice of the Lord. One is to fear the word of the Lord. The other is not to pay attention. And it's the fear of the Lord that brings you to obey. It's the fear of the Lord that involves his words, his directives, his commandments, his precepts, his statutes, and brings you to take that word to heart 
and brings you to do what the Word of God requires. You see the relationship between hearing the Word, fearing the Lord, fearing the Word, not fearing the Lord, not fearing the Word. And then we read that, um, verse 27, Then Pharaoh sent, called Moses and Aaron, and said to them, This time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, you shall stay, stay no longer. Now, what happens here is that Pharaoh becomes afraid of Yahweh's works. But that doesn't mean he fears his word. To be afraid of his works is not like thunder and lightning and what God could possibly do to strike you down with judgment. He had a perfect right to be afraid that way. Uh, The picture in Isaiah chapter 2 of the people upon whom the judgments of God falls, running to the caves to hide themselves from the presence of, uh, of the Lord and the judgments of the Almighty. Um, and that's a perfectly proper reaction, to be afraid. But the kind of fear that's the fear that is commanded, that God requires of us as his people, is not to be afraid of God. It's not to run away from God. It's not to be struck with terror in the presence of God. It's rather to desire to please him. It's the desire to hear his voice that we might do it. So Pharaoh might have responded out of a fear and terror of the judgments of God and the works of God, but he doesn't still have the fear of God in his heart. And so Moses says to him, in the words of verse 29, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. I'm sorry, uh, yes, to Yahweh. The thunder will cease, there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. You may be in terror against him, but you don't fear him. Because if you feared him, you'd hear his voice. If you feared him, you'd credit his word. If you feared him, you'd incline your heart towards him, to please him, to do the things that he says. If you feared him, you would obey him and comply with what he has said. And so, godly fear has respect to God speaking. God addressing his people, commanding his people. You look at the scene on um, Mount Sinai. The people of Israel come out of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. And what do you find happening on Mount Sinai? Well, there is this voice of God that's heard in the midst of the lightning and of the thunder and of the fire and of this awesome revelation of the majesty of God Um, Mount Sinai was wrapped up in smoke chapter 19 and verse 18 Um, the Lord descended on it it was wrapped up in smoke the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln this is chapter 19 and verse 18 and the whole mountain trembled greatly so there were uh, Let's see, uh, earlier on in 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very large trump, loud trumpet blast. People in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The Lord came down, verse 20, on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then God spoke from the mountain. 
And he spoke in such a way as it did strike terror into the hearts of his people. Uh, Verse 18, when all the people saw the thunder, and this is chapter 20 in verse 18, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. Oh, good, now they're going to obey God. Well, they haven't up to this point. (laughs) They're tempting the Lord. They're uh, not really regarding the words of his promises. They prove not to be obedient. Um, It's not the godly fear that the covenant people are to have, hearing his voice and bending our hearts to be doing his will, looking to please him. Um, But they were yet afraid. They were afraid of God, but they didn't fear God. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let the Lord speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. And how often does scripture say that? Do not fear. Or not to fear. Abraham, um, do not fear. Walk before me uh, and be perfect. And uh, I am the, the, uh, oh, I forgot the words. Uh, I am the... uh, chapter 15, chapter 15 and verse 1 I'm your shield, that's what it is don't be afraid, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward Uh, God is to speak to his people that long to please him and want to obey him yet in the face of the things of life or even in the the face of an an angelic visitation in the face of something that would strike terror in our hearts by nature God gives that word of consolation again and again and again fear not, fear not fear not Um, and so the people are not to fear do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you not the fear of a loud voice or lightning or thunder and trumpets but the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin that you would hear his voice and you would do the things that he has said and the way this gets interpreted in the book of Deuteronomy turn to Deuteronomy I believe it's in chapter 4 Verse 5, he says, um, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as Yahweh my God, my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering, to take possession of them. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear these statutes, will say, Surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us? whenever we call upon him and what great nation is there the statutes and rules so righteous is all this law that I set before you this day only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life make them known to your children's children and uh, your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb that's Mount Sinai It's called Horeb in the book of Deuteronomy and other places in the Old Testament, but it's the same mountain. It's the mountain of the Lord. It's Mount Sinai. You stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Yahweh said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my my words. That they hear my words. That's God's intention. 
Not just that God would publish his words through Moses, but that they would hear his words. So that they may learn to fear me all the days of their life that they live on the earth. The purpose of it was not to make them afraid. The purpose of it was to put the fear of God in their hearts that they would follow him and obey him and learn to fear him all the days of their life on the earth and they may teach their children so. So again, the fear of God responds to the voice of God. The fact that God has spoken, that God has said, that God has given us his words, his statutes, that we may be obedient to them. Now, again, it's not the question of the fact they heard a a loud voice and thunder and lightning and the rest. Uh, Because again, God doesn't always speak that way. He had his reasons for revealing himself in that way, at that time, and in that place. But that's not the only way God speaks. And it's not, thankfully, the way he speaks in, 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 normally. It's not the way he spoke to Abraham. It's not the way he spoke um, to Isaac and Jacob uh, and Joseph and uh, uh, David and the prophets. Uh, there was certainly revelations of God's majesty and glory, of things that they would see in vision. But yet when God spoke, it was always words of, don't fear. Words of grace, words of pardon, words of forgiveness. And the fear of God that he would cultivate in the hearts of his people is the kind of fear that would reverence his words, respond to his words with active obedience, hearing his words that we might do his words and perform them. Because you know there's another scene that took place on Mount Horeb. And uh, I was talking to Mike about this uh, yesterday at the picnic. I'm going to throw this in. This is a freebie I'm giving you tonight. Has, it has something to do with the passage, but it also has something to do with things I don't yet understand, but things that yet do intrigue me. It has to do with what we read about in the life of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, I believe it is, where we have the aftermath of Mount Carmel. Um, Elijah was that mighty man of God who stood on Carmel and he stood alone confronting the 400 prophets of Baal and um, the great victory that was won let the God who answers by fire be God and again uh, Baal was the weather God he was the God of lightning he was the God who could come in fire upon an offering and yet he's uh, taking a vacation somewhere and he's not able to hear but uh, the true God is 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 the God of Israel it's the God whom Elijah served and so there was this great victory that was won that was followed by an interesting defeat that when Jezebel heard what Elijah had done from Ahab in verse 19 and verse 1 that we killed all the prophets with the sword uh, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this day tomorrow (laughs) and what happened? This mighty man that stood in the presence of 400 prophets of Baal caves at the voice of a woman. He was afraid. He arose and he ran for his life. This is surprising. What in the world gives that he would do that? Well, we find that he comes to Beersheba and uh, he goes a day's journey into the wilderness away from his servant that he leaves in Beersheba and he comes under the broom tree and he asks that he might die saying it's enough now Lord take away my life from no better than my father's and he lay down and he slept under the broom tree this is probably what Elijah desperately needed he needed to sleep he had gone through the ringer and he was just bereft of any strength 
left. So to the voice of Jezebel, he ran. He ran. And the best thing to do was just to, to go under the broom tree and, uh, and sleep. He, he wants to die, but Elijah, you need sleep. So God gives him sleep. And uh, an angel touches him and says to him, Arise and eat. That's the next thing. You need nourishment, Elijah. You need a good night's rest and you need some nourishment. And so Elijah eats and is nourished. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones, a jar of water. So the one who provided uh, the uh, foodstuffs for the widow of Zarephath, that it would not run out, God, in an angel visitation, provides for his servant uh, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and he drank, he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat. So he goes back to sleep. He's, he's told to get up again. Uh, we got to feed this guy. we got to get this guy some rest. Arise and eat, for the journey's too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And look what happens. He went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. But we're not told, God said, in the strength of this food that I'm giving you, that's going to last you 40 days and 40 nights, you're to go to Mount Horeb. It's something he chose to do. We don't know why he chose it, but he chose to go those 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Elijah comes to Mount Sinai. Elijah comes from the very place where Moses met with God, where Moses received the Ten Commandments, where Moses received the Word of God. And it's almost as if Elijah thinks, I need to have something of uh, the vision of God's glory that uh, Moses had. So maybe at Horeb, I'll recapture my strength. God gave him strength to go 40 days. And again, you have the 40 days that Moses was upon the mountain with God and he fasted. He had the strength of that food. He went 40 days in the wilderness and he was nourished and he had the strength to make that journey all the way down to the south to Mount Sinai. When he comes to Sinai, he came to a cave. Again, remember, it was God that put Moses into the cleft of the rock this was an area with caves and he finds a cleft of a rock and he lodged in it and it's there that the word of the Lord came to him and said God's word to him was a word of Elijah what gives? Why are you here? What are you doing here Elijah? I didn't command you to come to Sinai. I didn't tell you to run from Jezebel I didn't give you any instructions you've not listened to me You've not heard my voice. So at least at this point, because of fatigue, because of malnutrition, whatever the reasons were, Elijah had fallen into a pattern of not fearing God, of not hearing his words. And he had his own words to speak. Instead of saying, when he says, what are you doing here, Elijah, what Samuel said when he heard a voice that that Eli told him to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Lord, I'm here to listen. Elijah's not on this mountain to listen. Elijah's on this mountain to speak. And he has a lot of thoughts to speak and a lot of grievances to give forth. And that's exactly what he does. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left they seek my life to take it away hmm quite a mouthful quite a mouthful so there's no Lord can you give me some help with some of the struggles of faith I'm dealing with now 
Can you give me a word of help, consolation, a word of light and understanding, a word of direction? No, 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 no. He's spouting forth his grievances. That's what he does. So what does God tell him to do? Well, in verse 11, he says, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by. Exactly what he did when Moses was in the cleft of the rock. Yahweh passed by and he declared his name. He made all of his goodness pass before Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. He passed by. And he passed by, and there were all of the manifestations that you see in the appearance to the nation at Sinai. There was first the great and strong wind that tore the mountains, broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. The earth quaked at Sinai when God made his appearance in, Genesis, in Exodus 19. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Again, there were fires that appeared on Sinai and smoke. But Yahweh was not in the fire. In fact, Yahweh was the fire, the consuming fire that appeared on Sinai in the midst of the smoke and the cloud covering. But Yahweh was not in the wind, he was not in the earthquake, he was not in the fire, he was not in all of the ways that he spoke to the nation at Mount Sinai. And after the fire, there was the sound of a low whisper. King James has a still small voice. It was a low whisper. It was a silent word almost. There was a word that if he heard anything at all, it was a very faint whisper that God spoke to him. We're not told what God said. Did he say what he said to Moses? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. We're not told exactly what he said, but he, God said something. And what God said is significant. And it's something that, sh- that Elijah should have taken to heart. It was something that should have resolved his issues, resolved his problems, put an end to his grievances. One would at least have thought. When Elijah heard it, that is the sound of the slow whisper, Yahweh in that slow sound of the the low whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out and stood into the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, exactly what it said before, what are you doing here, Elijah? One would have thought, in the light of the appearance of God to him, in that still small voice, there would have been something of a change in the prophet. But the reality is there wasn't. There wasn't. He responded, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars. Same issues, same complaints, same problems. At that point, God's not going to tell him anything more about resolving his issues. No, 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 no. But in fact, God does tell him return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus again he's in the deep south Sinai Peninsula he's going to go up to the north to Damascus and Syria when you arrive you're to anoint Haziel to be king over Syria again in this section the Syrians play a large part in conflict with the nation of Israel Ahab is at war with the Syrians and so there's to be a new king over Syria and that's going to be the nation that's going to defeat Ahab and ultimately kill Ahab 
And then you're to do another thing. You're to anoint the new king in Israel. Ahab is going to die and uh, there's going to be a new king. And ultimately, God says it's to be Jehu, the son of Nimshi, that you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So a new king in Syria, a new king in Israel. And you know what? A new prophet. A new prophet. Elijah has perhaps come to his end of his usefulness as a prophet of Yahweh. Because he was not fearing the Lord. He feared the he feared Jezebel. And so the final thing is Elisha, the son of Shaphath, of Abihola, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who is and then he goes on to say of um, the way in which God will judge uh, the northern kingdom and the king. Um, and but then he gives a final word, yet I will uh, I have not. I've, I have left seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. I know the ESV puts it in the future. I don't think it is. I think it's the fact that at that point, God says to Elijah, "You simply don't know what you don't know. You think you're alone, and you're not. You think you're the only resource I have, and you're not. I've reserved for myself seven thousand in Israel, all that have not bowed the knee to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him." And then as you read on, you see that uh, Elijah, though he makes an appearance in two other instances of judgment scenes with regard to judging Ahab for his thing he did with uh, Naboth and the vineyard that he took uh, at Jezebel's uh, instigation. And uh, there's also the judgment that comes in the reign of the next king with all of these bands of 50 prophets that come and he sends, brings fire from heaven. So there is that judgment aspect that... Uh, he has, but as far as restoring the nation, as far as words that will minister to God's people, uh, he falls in the back in the background. In fact, we have an unnamed prophet that comes into the fore in chapter 20. We have Micaiah, the son of Imla, a prophet that comes in chapter 22. And uh, Elijah's days are done. Elisha comes and becomes his assistant, and Elijah falls into the background. And I don't think I ever saw that before with respect to Elijah. He's still a mighty man of God. He's still the man that descends into heaven in a, in a, uh, in a chariot of fire. He's still the man that uh, came as representative of the prophets to appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Be it, he's a man who, in, in, in many ways, like Moses, like David, like all the servants of the Lord, was a man flawed, particularly in this area of who he feared. That he feared Jezebel. And he didn't fear the word of the Lord. And when God spoke to him, and God doesn't need to speak out of the wind. He doesn't need to speak out of the fire. He doesn't need to speak out of an earthquake. He doesn't need to make these uh, demonstrations of his power to impress us. His voice is all we need. And if it comes in the way of a small, faint whisper, we want to hear that small, faint whisper to get the message accurately, to get his words clearly, to make certain that we've not neglected any part of what the Lord has said, because we fear him, and we fear his words, and we want to heed his voice, and we want to walk in his ways. So it seems to me that's where the fear of God really does come in. And there's also things in the book of Proverbs that also affirm the fear of the Lord and the voice of the Lord. They do seem to go hand in hand. Um, and again, 
loving God is respect to the totality of God's being, the totality of his revelation. But godly fear enters in because we have a God who speaks. We have a God whose voice is made known. We have a God whose voice is to be heard. And we are to respond to his voice in a way of fearing that we miss something. Lord, I don't want to miss anything. You know, think of it. Think of, you know, there was a, a movie years ago. The next voice you hear it was called. And it was how back in the 50s, um, when radio, I guess, was the main thing that people heard, uh, God started in this thing. Uh, there was a voice to pretend, that said it was the voice of God they were hearing on the radios. Imagine if God chose to communicate himself in that way. And uh, back in the day, your radios, especially AM, a frequency sometimes you didn't get with real clarity. So if that was the God's chosen way of communicating his word, and we feared God, and the radio broadcast was going to come, it's God's voice that's now to be heard. Would you say, oh, I'm, I think I'll go take a walk. I think I'll uh, go out and have a catch with uh, you know, someone else, my, my son. No, you'd be at the radio. And you'd make certain that the frequency was turned in real clearly because you would fear that you would miss something. You don't want to miss anything of the things that God has said. And then once you have the message, the great fear you'd have is that you would misuse his words and you would not use his words as he intended his words to be used in the way of obedience. So the fear of God is the desire to please him. It's a desire to capture every aspect of his revelation and to be doing his words in compliance with the things that he has said. So, again, the fear of the Lord is that wholehearted desire to please him. Uh, just as you, you know, you, we've feared our fathers, uh, the writer of the Hebrews says. And that doesn't mean we were terrified of them. It doesn't mean we ran for them when the father came to supper. No. You ran to your father. You loved your father. But yet when your father spoke, that son, look at me. Son, listen to me. Daughter, here's the rules of the house. You reverenced your father. Because your father's words were to be heard and obeyed. What does God require of us? What is our reasonable service? Well, it's in the light of the God who speaks. To hear his voice. To listen to his words. To incline our heart to his instruction. And then, by the grace and power that he himself will supply to us, to walk in ways of obedience. To walk in paths that comply with his his, his words because our greatest delight is to know his pleasure our greatest delight is to have his smile our greatest fear is we will not have his smile and so that is what the fear of God is and that's perfectly consistent with love that's what love demands love demands we hear his voice love demands we incline our heart to his words love demands we seek his pleasure by the doing of his will We have three left. God willing, take up next week the, the 
The second of these, which will be the third, the order, moving from the center to the beginning, we're to love God is the central thing, and then the first priority of love is to listen to the voice, to hear his words, and to do the things he has said. Well, let's look to him in prayer, giving him thanks for this Lord's Day. Father, we're thankful for your word, its truth, its light, its sustenance to our souls. We're thankful, Lord, we can meet together uh, to worship you and to praise your name and to study the scriptures. Be pleased to impart blessing to our hearts and our minds and giving us understanding of the things we've looked at tonight, that we would be a people who fear you, a people who hear your voice and comply with your instructions and walk in your ways and do your will and know your pleasure delight in your fear. So we ask you to hear our cries as we come to you, thanking you for this day, thanking you for the blessings that you freely bestow upon your children who call upon your name. Be with us throughout the remaining days of this week, that in all that we do, we might serve you well and live to the praise of your glory as we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.